apparently turned to the strongest five on record, the strongest hurricane they have ever experienced, just overnight. I guess on the Weather Channel, the people went away at night and thought, well, it's no big deal. They came back to work this morning and had gone from tropical storm to a Category 5 overnight. Uh, apparently, it's going to go right across Cuba and is pointed at Florida, whether it will hit the East Coast, the West Coast, or the whole thing, or who knows. But uh, I guess they're already evacuating Key West because uh, it, it could just wipe that out. I mean, it, it, it might lose some strength as it goes over Cuba. But Cuba isn't very wide if it comes directly in through there. So who knows what it'll do, but it seems that things are intensifying. Now, let's go back to the book of Jeremiah. We finished chapter 1. That means we can project this to last 52 weeks. Well, if we do one chapter a day through the feast, it won't be 52 weeks, but 52 sermons anyway. Now, we might cover it a little faster. The, the more I read in Jeremiah, the more I'm beginning to see, I, I think, a subtle change in timeline and focus. You know, through the Minor Prophets and through Isaiah, we talked an awful lot about the separate timelines of the church and the destruction of physical Israel, destruction of spiritual Israel, and then following that would be physical Israel. And we followed that line of thinking for a long time. Now, I don't think that changes in Jeremiah, but let's notice that there may be a blending in this book, that the destruction physically that's going to come on the nations of Israel is also going to come on 90% of the church. So as we move into this physical destruction, which I think Jeremiah talks quite a bit about, it will affect both. And the only ones that will have any protection will be those who have achieved protection from God as part of his remnant. The rest will go through it together. You know, there will no, no longer be separate timelines. It will be together. Because what's happening to the church will be happening to the nation. And maybe it's timely that we be going through Jeremiah at this point because it does appear that more and more destruction is coming on this nation and more and more problems are arising. I mean, you've got mudslides in California, flooding in the east, hurricanes on the south, and another one apparently about to hit, and maybe the worst one ever in history since record-keeping began. So who knows where it'll all head? Maybe this is the time it begins and maybe it isn't. But let's go into chapter 2 and see how that develops. Moreover, well, to, for brief review, uh, Jeremiah had been given his commission, and then God told him, I'll be with you, I'll protect you, but they will fight you. They don't want to hear this. So let's go to chapter 2 then, change in thought. Moreover, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Eternal, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your espousals, 
when you went after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. God says, I remember you when I brought you right out of Egypt. I remember the meek and humble attitudes, and I remember the marriage covenant I had with you. I remember the first love you had, which is the love of espousals, you know, two just getting together and enamored with one another and putting their best foot forward. God could remember when Israel vowed a marriage covenant with him. He has a good memory. And they went out into a wilderness, a land that was not sown with crops, but a waste-howling desert for that matter. Israel was holiness to the eternal and the first fruits of his increase. He, he remembered the good times. And all that devour him shall offend. So God said, I was going to protect you. I promised you protection. And anyone who tried to devour you would offend me. And that would not be good for them. Evil shall come upon them, says the eternal. Don't mess with my bride. And that's what Israel was at that point. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Well, God says, tells Jeremiah, tell these people, I remember what was. Okay? Now hear the word of God. Thus says the eternal, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and are become vain? What is vain? Self-important, egocentric, selfish. What, what do they find wrong with me, he says. You know, like a bride and groom come together, they get married, they've had their best foot forward, and then the honeymoon ends at some point, and they begin to pick at each other and find fault with one another. Well, this isn't what I thought I was getting, kind of a reaction. And most anybody who's been married had at least a little of that somewhere along the line. God said, what, what have you found wrong with me? Where'd you go? Where are your affections? Neither said they, where is the Lord that brought us out of the, of the land of Egypt that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought, in the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt? They didn't say, where is God? They knew God was there. There was a pillar of fire. There was a cloud to follow. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. So they crossed the Jordan River on a miracle, the same way they crossed the Red Sea in a miracle. The water's going backward. So I brought you in this good country. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. God had worked with Abraham, probably at Jerusalem, where he had sent him. And then they went into slavery, came out, went into the land that God probably had made the Garden of Eden in. I don't think it was in Illinois or Missouri, in spite of what the Mormons think. Probably right there where Jerusalem is today. Well, that's the land God started working in. He said, you defiled my land. You, I, I brought you here. The priest said not, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. 
Now we can be thinking historically here, but let's apply it because it is an end time prophecy to our people today. It's not just the promised land that he brought them to because he expanded the promised land, didn't he? He gave us North America. He gave us Australia. He gave us the British Isles. He gave us a lot of different areas where Israelites settled. And they were beautiful lands. It's hard to find a country anywhere that has what America has. It's hard to find the right climate. This land is beautifully blessed if you drive across it. It's a very productive, wonderful land. We're destroying it, but it started out that way. And God moved Israel here. So he's talking about us in America today and wherever else Israel is. But we didn't really look for God. We assumed we were okay, and we in the church have done the same. So the, the story is here, whether you're talking about the church specifically or our people Israel that you and I are derived from. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you. <laughs> it says, you haven't sought me, you haven't asked where's God, you haven't gone to find him, but I'll still plead with you, says the eternal. He could have just sent destruction, you know, out of nowhere. No, he sent Jeremiah to plead with them. And he sent Jeremiah via the printed word to plead with us today. With our nation and with us as a church. With your children's children will I plead. In other words, on down the line from you. And we're on down the line. For pass over the isles of Chittim and see, and send to Kadar and consider diligently and see if there be such a thing. So he says, look from the east to the west. Chittim was more like around Italy, and Kadar was to the east. So he says, and that was their whole world at that time. We can broaden that now and look from east to west, all across the world where people have settled, and see if there be such a thing. What thing? Has a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? Look at the change that's occurring in America today from people who have believed in a creation, from people who have believed that there is a God, to an increasingly godless society who believes in evolution. I mean, that's been pushed and pushed and pushed for the last hundred years in this country. And most, by now, have pretty much accepted it. And we're worshiping animals ahead of God. Mother Earth and the animals that are on it. That's where we've come. Has a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? They're not really gods, but that's what people spend their time and energy doing. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Look to the east, look to the west. That's what you see. Nothing profitable. Is there anything going on in our country today that would lead the American people to godliness and salvation? Nothing out there. Even within the church, we don't see obedience, turning to God, being preached a great deal. Here and there, a little. Somewhere else, a little, but not much. It's mostly smooth and easy things. 
So what does God say? Be astonished, O you heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. If you look to the east and you look to the west, and you don't find people obeying God and serving God and looking to God, be afraid, be very afraid. Because God is a jealous God. He says it over and over. For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's the first big error that both the nation and the church have made. We've forsaken God and gone after other things, material things, ideas, uh, self-aggrandizement, vanity, ego, trying to be important. The church has done an awful lot of that. Organizations are trying to be the most important. Remember what we saw in Isaiah 3, how they're comparing themselves among themselves, trying to be the most important. You know, being important is not important. Doing important things is what is important. What are important things that need to be done? Take care of the poor, the needy, the widow, support the weak. Those are important things. Those are the things that will enter into our judgment when Jesus Christ comes. If you didn't do it to these, you didn't do it to me, he says. Well, we like to be important in terms of position or wealth or uh, the acclamation of others or just to feel important. But a feeling of importance is unimportant. If you want to be truly important to God, then do important things, things that are important to Him. Now, taking care of a widow or an orphan doesn't seem like a big important thing in the world. But according to Scripture, that's about as important as you can be, isn't it? What our view of is and importance isn't always what God's is. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they're chasing off after other goals, purposes, whatever. And hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. So they, first of all, get rid of God, who can be a cistern of living water, and then they've made for themselves things that don't hold any water. It's an expression we use. That argument doesn't hold any water. Well, our way of life doesn't hold any water. The things that we pursue are often so unimportant and in the way of what God is trying to do. He says, is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Now, there's a difference in slaves. If you bought a servant or a slave, he was usually inferior to one who was raised in your own house. In other words, that slave may have been attached somewhere else, and Israel had slaves. Even in the early New Testament church, there was still slavery within the church. But if you bought a servant, and that servant had had to leave wife or husband, children, friends, and come and be your slave, he would not be near as loyal a slave as one that had been born on your farm, 
and grown up there, and his family and friends and everyone was there, and he'd been taught loyalty to that master from babyhood on. Be a much better one. So he asked, is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? In other words, we have become slaves of Jesus Christ, haven't we? That was the covenant we made. He purchased us with a price, his life, his blood. And we willingly became slaves. Now, if we willingly did it, then we should be really, really good ones, shouldn't we? We volunteered. I want to be your slave. I am in your debt. I'm an indentured servant, if you will. So we ought to really be good ones, shouldn't we? But God asks the question, is this someone I just bought off the street? Are these homeborn? Why are they spoiled? Or as my King James margin says, become a spoil. They're not faithful. They're not good slaves. They're not good servants. They've, they're spoiled. I got some cantaloupe out of the refrigerator the other day, and I, I hadn't eaten them fast enough, things that had been cut up. And uh, I popped one in my mouth, and it was really, really sour. It was spoiled. That's the way God is looking upon Israel today. You know, they were supposed to trust me. They said they would originally. They're still not. Those in the church said they would, but they're not. The young lions roared upon him and yelled, and they made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. This is what's coming as a result of us not being the proper slaves. And it's coming on physical Israel and 90% of the church. Also the children of Noth and Tahapanes have broken the crown of your head. Now Noth is down in Egypt, and King Josiah was still reigning when Jeremiah began to write this prophecy. Josiah was killed by the Egyptians. He was a righteous king. But his advisors wanted Josiah to make an alliance with the Egyptians. Now God had said, don't make alliances. That's political whoring. So don't do that. I'm your God. I'm your protector. You don't need alliances with these nations around you for physical protection. But it's easy to forget God when we're in trouble, isn't it? And that's what Israel began to do. They started having problems, so they began to look to other solutions than to God. God is a jealous God, and he does not like that. So even though Josiah was a righteous king, and his advisor says, go make an alliance with Egypt, Josiah said, no way. I'll go kill the Egyptians instead of make an alliance with them. So he went to war against the Egyptians. And he was killed in that war. Then his sons took over and were not righteous as Josiah had been and began to allow false religion to creep in, began to let Israel stray. Josiah wouldn't put up with straying from God. If you started erecting a grove to go worship anything else or you started coming in with strange ideas, Josiah would stop it. He'd nip it in the bud. He wouldn't let it get started. But his sons weren't like that. 
Josiah protected the relationship with God. But then he disappeared. It says, In Nop and Tehaponese, they've broken the crown of your head. The Hebrew force here is more like they shaved you bald. And being bald was a disgrace and a sign of mourning in Israel. So in other words, the Egyptians have disgraced you. The church has been disgraced by following the sinful ways of the world. By looking too much like the world and not having the image of God. And our so-called Christian nation doesn't look much like God anymore. God is upset. So who is responsible? You know, we always have to get responsibility, accountability. God says, who's accountable for this? Remember, we were talking, I think it was on atonement, about responsibility. Who is responsible for sin? And it's easy to boil it down to two, Satan or us. There's no one else there to accept responsibility. So God says, have you not procured this to yourself? And that you've forsaken the eternal your God when he led you by the way. He was trying to lead you the right way, but you've forsaken God. You've gone your own way. You've done your own thing. You've been so busy with the world that you have not devoted the time to God. The nation is that way. The church has become that way. Doing their own thing. That's dangerous. And now what have you to do in the way of Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? That's the Nile. Well, what business do you have down there in Egypt drinking out of the Nile? You know, God says, I'm the cistern of living waters, a few verses above this. Why are you going down and drinking water somewhere else? Why are you drinking pagan water? Or, what have you to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river? That would mean the Euphrates. Doesn't matter whether you go south or whether you go north and east, you're drinking out of a broken cistern. You're broken out of something, or drinking out of something that will not satisfy your thirst. He is the cistern of living waters, and he's going to break these other cisterns that we have trusted in, where we thought we would get sustenance and protection. What does America do today? Maybe not to Egypt per se, maybe not to Iraq or Iran per se, but we still make alliances with other peoples here, there, and everywhere to try to get coalitions together for protection against the axis of evils. We're doing the same thing. A little bit different situation, but the same thing. Hosea talks about the silly dove that runs to the Assyrian for help and protection. And we have alliances, try to keep the relationships right with Germany. How many times last century did the Germans try to kill us all? <laughs> Sounds like a good idea to make a peaceful alliance with them, doesn't it? It's in their heart to destroy nations, not a few. But we don't read the Bible. Verse 19, Your own wickedness shall correct you, and your backsliding shall reprove you. In other words, there is cause and effect. God says, you're responsible for what you've done in departing from God, and you're going to reap 
what you sow. Little different words for the same thing. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that you've forsaken the eternal your God, and that my fear is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. It's a bitter thing that we have trusted in anything or anyone but God. And it is going to bring deep bitterness upon our people and great destruction. What is the beginning of wisdom? Fear of God. We haven't feared God. We've gone our own ways, gone our own direction. And therefore, he says, this is going to be a bitter pill you're going to have to swallow because you've done this. For of old time, I have broken your yoke and burst your bands. God says, if you had a yoke on your back, I broke it for you. If you had bands around you that restricted you, I broke those for you. I took care of you. And you can read back through the Old Testament. I could make a sermon out of that going back and seeing places where God did deliver Israel, where he did break their enemies, where he destroyed the problems they had. The Bible is replete with examples of that. And God is just reminding them, you know, I said I'd take care of you, and I did. What happened? Now, it's just as bad now as it was then. In fact, Christ himself said, when I return, he put it right at the end time. When I return, will I find faith on earth? Big question in his mind. Will there be people who truly are willing to trust me with their whole life, with every part of life, leaving nothing out? See, that's what he's getting on us here about. Is you've gone and you... You've drank water out of broken cisterns. You, you've gone other places. You've sought help somewhere besides me. And it doesn't matter what the subject is. You know, there are a lot of different areas of life that we try to find some kind of solution rather than God's solution. You said, I will not transgress. You've said, I will take comfort in you you were the God of all the universe. You made everything. You made my body. You made rules to live by. I will not transgress. I will look to you for everything. And then we look somewhere else for something or maybe even for everything. When upon every high hill and under every green tree you wandered playing the harlot, any time we depart from God and find another solution, or to use this analogy, another lover. God calls it whoring after others. Because he was to be our one God. Jesus Christ was to be their one husband in ancient Israel, and he is to be our bridegroom today. The only one we look to for answers to any of life's problems. So, if we go elsewhere than to him, he says that's harlotry. Spiritual, it's not necessarily talking about physical harlotry, although that happens quite often in our society. But we can do it spiritually by seeking someone's affection, someone's attention, someone's answer, someone to bring us flowers other than Christ. Yet I had planted you a noble vine, 
holy a right seed. God started us out right. He gave us everything we'd need. How then are you turned into a, the degenerate plant of a strange vine to me? Remember Isaiah 5, where it talks about how he started Israel out and planted her as a vineyard. He put a hedge around her and he put a watchtower there to keep the foxes out from eating the tender grapes and all that. And he says, looked around and you weren't producing good fruit. You were producing wild fruit. So I tore down the hedge. I knocked down the watchtower. Perfectly describes what has happened to the church today. And Jeremiah uses, well, God is behind what Isaiah wrote and God is behind what Jeremiah wrote. He uses the same analogy here. How, how did I plant good seed in the ground and I look at this vine and say, where did that come from? For though you wash you with nitre and take you much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the eternal God. I see what you really are. You, you know, you can, you can scrub yourself up, but I still smell something. I know what's there. Now, has anything changed? Is there anything new under the sun? What did Adam and Eve do? They were walking around naked just like everything was supposed to be that way, and it was. Then they sinned. They got the knowledge of good and evil and shame. They tried to hide their nakedness from God. <laughs> How are you going to do that? You know, Why are you wearing those leaves? Did you sin? Well, How stupid do we think God is? That we can sin and scrub our back with soap and say, well, I'm okay. God sees through it. Your iniquity is marked. How can you say, I am not polluted. How can we say I've not gone after Balaam? See your way in the valley. Know what you have done. God says, quit deceiving yourself. Quit trying to deceive me. Open your eyes to what you really are. Why are you trying to hide with clothes like Adam and Eve? Why are you trying to hide your face with makeup? Why are you trying to change the way you look why are you hiding your conduct? Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They think if they do something at night, nobody will see. God sees in the dark. Why do we try to hide? How can we say, I am not polluted? You know, it goes right back to Revelation 3. We think we're fully clothed, and God says you're naked and blind, and we don't know it. Somehow we've managed to deceive ourselves to the point we don't even recognize that we have problems. Now most of us can very readily see other people's problems, can't we? We can see, we can talk about. Why can't we see our own? Why can't we comprehend our own self-righteousness? It's harder to see. Harder to admit, harder to strip the deception from our eyes and see what we really are. But God says, why can't you see it? How can you say, I'm rich and increased with goods? When God says you're naked and blind. The, the very fact that he says this here and in Revelation 3 
means that we need to give it very deep, serious consideration. We need to individually sit down and say, how am I deceiving myself? What is it about me that I don't see, that God sees, or others see? What kind of uncleanness is in my heart and mind? What kind of uncleanness do I hide myself from? To try to make myself look good. You know, looking good to ourselves, or taking a shower and washing with soap, God says, let them get it. If it's wrong in here, it's wrong. We've got to have a clean machine up here. So how does he compare us? How can you say, I'm not polluted, I've not gone after Balaam? He says, see your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You're a swift dromedary traversing her ways. He says, you're like a camel in a hurry. In a hurry to get things done. Don't know what I'm doing, but I'm in a hurry to get things done. There's a song about that. Don't know where I'm headed, what I'm doing, but I'm sure in a hurry. That's the way Americans are today. He compares us. You ready for this? A wild ass used to the wilderness that sniffs up the wind at her pleasure. In her occasion, or that's when she's in heat, who can turn her away? All they that seek her will not weary themselves. In her month they shall find her. He compares us to a donkey in heat. In that you don't have to chase around and try to find her. She'll be around. All you have to do is sniff the wind and she'll be easy to find. That's how easily we come to sin. That's how easily we go the wrong way. Kind of a crude analogy, but it's one God uses. Maybe he uses crude analogies sometimes so that it might really hit us. How we really are. Withhold your foot from being unshod, and your throat from thirst. But you said there is no hope. No, for I have loved strangers, and after them will I go. At some point it's easy to just kind of give up and say, well, I guess I'll just do my own thing. I, I've heard people say, well, God's just going to have to take me like I am. I'm so discouraged with trying to do this, this, or this in my life. I just can't get it done. He's just going to have to take me like I am. Now, some problems are very, very difficult to overcome. But there should be no give up in us. We've got to be the little train that could. We keep working at it. We keep trying. Now, I'm looking at an audience here who's most of them been in the church 30, 40 10, 20, 30, 40 years? Would all those who have overcome and achieved total spiritual maturity and perfection please stand? We want to see an example that we can look to. Where's the chair? I need to sit down too. None of us are there yet, are we? We're all in the same boat together. We all have a long way to go. Every last one of us. Well, let's not hide from ourselves. You know, come on, we're all in this boat together. Let's, let's all row together. Let's all help one another become what we need to become. It's easy to tear one another apart. It's hard to row in tandem 
and get it together the way we need to. It takes a great deal of effort. Let's not hide from ourselves. Let's all realize we have lacks, we have needs, we have weaknesses. There is none among us who doesn't. But we might as well just admit it and then go to work on it, helping each other achieve what we need to achieve together. If we hide from it and our vanity is in the way, then it's awfully hard to do, isn't it? It is so hard for human beings. Now, you might sometimes privately, in the dark of your own room, admit to yourself that you have problems. But what if someone else decides to point one of those out to you? It's okay for you to think it because that doesn't embarrass you. But boy, let somebody else say it and how quickly you will defend yourself. How quickly you will even lie to cover and try to hide from your sin. Don't want anyone else to know. God says we need to confess our faults, our weaknesses, our needs one to another. I don't think that means that we need to just get out a list and write down all of our sins and carry them around and say, here are my problems. I don't think that's going to gain us anything. Because we would probably despise each other even more. <laughs> but we don't need to hide and defend either. We need to admit sometimes when, hey, yeah, you're right, I need to work on that. But it has been my job for well nigh the 40 years now to sometimes have to guide, correct, direct someone in a better path than the one they're on. And it is almost invariable that there will be defense and justification. It's very, very rare that once someone will say, man, alive, you're right, I'm sorry, I'll go to work on that. That is a rare occurrence. Why? Because we are full of ego and vanity and self, and we're just simply not willing to admit there could be anything wrong with us, not in public or not to another individual. Maybe to God, but there are plenty of examples in the Bible where God has pointed things out that were wrong, and we don't want to hear that either. Matter of fact, isn't that pretty much what this whole book is about? Is God pointing out to Israel and to the church what our problems are, and what is the overall general majority reaction. Don't want to hear it? Preach smooth and easy things to me. That's what ancient Israel and modern Israel and the church today generally respond with. Don't want to hear that. We simply don't want to hear it. Well, God says... But we'll say, there's no hope, for I have loved strangers, and after them will I go. This is the way I am. This is the way I'm going to go. Can't change it. As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. Now, I can point these things out, what the prophets are saying to us, but are we going to do anything about it? You know, it's nice to hear, maybe. We understand. We need to hear it. We understand there are problems. 
But are we going to take it personal and make the personal changes we need to make? I, I don't want to waste my time and yours. Why come here and why sit? Why get tired of sitting and listening? If it doesn't mean something, if we don't do something about it. I'm not here to put us down. I'm not here to discourage. I am here to teach you and me what it is that will make us better. What, is, what, what it will take to make us better Christians and more responsive to our Father in Heaven and our elder brother Jesus Christ. What we're doing here is not condemning ourselves so much as we're seeing a history of what has occurred and this should be teaching us something so that we do not do and repeat what Israel has done before. Now that is the tendency. Why can God look at Israel in embryo when they were first coming out of Egypt and write what will happen before they go into the captivity in Babylon? How can he write how the temple will be destroyed over and over again? How can he give these end-time prophecies about what will happen again in the end if people tended to change? We don't. We tend not to change. We tend to repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again. Generation to generation. There was a time when I'd look at my dad and said, well, I'm going to be an upgrade. I'm going to be an up improvement over my dad. And then I looked around one day and said, what happened? <laughs> why, why didn't I do what I wanted to do? And then one day, one of my sons, I don't know if there are two of my sons talking together or what, but I heard one of them say, in almost exactly the same words I had said it years before, I'm going to do better than Dad. I'm going to be an upgrade over Dad. Good luck, Buster. You're my son. <laughs> Had I been taken out of the gene pool and you had a different dad, maybe so, but uh, you're going to face the same things I faced. But, you know, we, we start out, we're going to whoop the world. We start out, we're going to change things. We're going to be better than our parents. And then at some point, I am my parent. One of the worst things you husbands can ever say to your wife is, you're more like your mother every day. Boy, they resent that. That drew enough response that I know I'm right. <laughs> if I hadn't been down that trail, I wouldn't know to say it. <clears throat> but we have a chance to change things. We have Almighty God and His Holy Spirit that can transform us, make us different, make us not repeat those errors. Now we know 90% of the church is going to repeat them, and God is talking about them right here in Jeremiah. It doesn't have to be us. I know 
a 10% remnant is going to make the changes. They will overcome. Somebody asked me, is our goal to be a Philadelphian? I said, absolutely not. I have no desire to become a Philadelphian. Was worldwide Philadelphian? We always thought so, maybe so. But the prevailing attitudes in the church today is Laodicean. Now what did God tell the Philadelphians to do? He told them, overcome, and I will make you pillars in the temple. Well, my goal isn't to become a Philadelphian. Maybe I was, maybe I became a Laodicean, maybe I'm a twisted mixture of all the above. All seven. My job is to overcome and be like Jesus Christ, not to recategorize myself as one of those seven. I guess we have that attitude because we once considered ourselves that. But whatever we were, God blew us apart. So if we have an image of what a Philadelphian was and want to return to that, we're not really gaining anything. My goal is to bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ. My goal is to be temperate and moderate in all things. My goal is to live by every word of God. To overcome whatever I am that doesn't look like God. To take away everything that doesn't look like God. Some, what was it about the figure of David or something? I, it was some artist made the statement when someone asked him, "Well, how did you get that to look so much like David?" Well, I chipped away everything that didn't look like David. We have to chip away everything that doesn't look like God. He isn't arrogant. He isn't proud. You know, I was born a Texan, lived there 18 years. Somebody said, Texan died up in Oklahoma. They said, I don't know how we're going to find a coffin big enough to put him in. Somebody says, it's real simple. Just stick him with a pen and bury him in a matchbox. <laughs> You know, if we Texans didn't have anything else to be proud of, we were proud of our pride. Think about that one. Texans are very proud of their pride. They're proud about everything Texas has, and they're proud of being proud. That's double jeopardy. I was born in Lubbock, Texas, and all I want to see is Lubbock, Texas in my rearview mirror. Another old song. We're to get rid of our pride. We're to become humble and meek. Whatever kind of pride we might have. All right, where are we here? As the thief, verse 26, is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets... God is just going to shame everyone. He's going to take it all down. And all our pride is going to be knocked flat.
saying to a stock, you are my father, to a stone, you have brought me forth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. We'll worship anything but God. We'll pay attention to anything but God. But boy, when we get upside down in a well, we'll holler for God. And we're just about to be dropped in a well upside down with a rope around our feet or around our neck. You don't have much time to holler for God if it's around your neck. If you're hanging by your feet, you've got a while, you can scream. But we're going to find out this is going to happen quite quickly. And it may be that the noose is around the neck. You don't get many screams out. Well, God says, what happened? I gave you everything you needed. You departed from me and went other directions. But boy, when you get in trouble, you know where to run. Why not just stay with him? Why, why depart from him? Why pursue our own things? But that's our tendency, or it's been the tendency of Israel and man forever since Adam and Eve. We've got to buck the trend. We've got to challenge before ourselves. See, this isn't about specific knowledge about certain doctrines or technicalities or the ins and outs of prophecy. This is about human conduct and thought. This is about devotion to God. This is about changing our image into the image of God. Verse 28, But where are your gods that you have made you? You scream for me. Well, you've been following this, that, and the other thing. Why don't you go there for your answer? How does it make a wife feel if a husband pays no attention to her, just takes her for granted, but then suddenly he wants something? Is she going to feel wonderful about that? You ignore me except when you want something special. If you make her special, feel special all the time, then she feels special all the time. Why don't we make God feel that he's our God and he's special to us all the time instead of wandering elsewhere until we get in trouble? Where are your gods that you've made? Let them arise, if they can save you in the time of your trouble. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. You've got gods coming out your ears. Every city has its own way. Chicago has got its own way of thinking. New York certainly has a different way of thinking. Texas has a wildly different way of thinking. Californians and San Francisco have a strange way of thinking, a lot of them. Every, every city you go to seems like they've got a different view, a different God, a different material direction they're headed. Same way with the churches. Wherefore will you plead with me? You know, what, what are you arguing about, God says? Why are you coming to me and pleading for help? You know, there's going to be a point where it's just simply too late. And God will say, why didn't you come last month? Why didn't you come last year? Why are you running to me now? There's your gods. Go out there. 
Why will you plead with me? You all have transgressed against me, says the Eternal. In vain have I smitten your children. They receive no correction. Well, I worked you over. I sent plagues. I've done all kinds of things to paddle you, to spank you. I've corrected your, smitten your children. They didn't get the point. They didn't wise up. Your own sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. What did Christ say long after this was written? O Jerusalem, that stoneth the prophets. He was still saying that in his day, hundreds of years later. O generation, see you the word of the Lord. Look at my word, he says. Okay, that's what we're doing. That's what we're here for. We're looking at God's words very minutely here. Have I been a wilderness to Israel? Look around you. Look at the blessings you've had. Look at the verdant ground. Look at the breadbasket in the middle of the country. Look at the forests and the woods. Look at the rivers and lakes that were teeming with fish and off your coastlines. Look at the wild animals that I left here and you basically destroyed, like the buffalo. Have I been a wilderness to you? A land of darkness? Wherefore say my people, we are lords. <laughs> you know, we're gods unto ourselves. We're idols. We've made idols of ourselves. We will come no more to you, question mark. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? What's happened here? I'm, I'm your bridegroom. How can you be anticipating marriage and you forget to put your wedding dress on? Are we going to go to the wedding supper of the lamb without our, lamb without our wedding dress on? That's ridiculous, isn't it? Did any of you gals forget your wedding dress? They were getting married? Maybe he forgot to get to the church on time, but you didn't forget your wedding dress. If you were standing on the porch waiting, you had your wedding dress on. I, I bet in every case. Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Here we're to marry Jesus Christ. And how easy is it, brethren, for us to go out in the world in the work day or shopping or wherever we are how easy is it to let God slip out of our consciousness? How easy is it to sort of be doing this or that or the other thing? And we're not checking our every thought. We're not thinking in spiritual terms. We're thinking in carnal terms. If we're to bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ, that means that we have to have a connection and an awareness of God 24 sevens. There can never be a time when it is not somewhere in our consciousness that whatever I'm doing, I need to be doing it the way God would do it. I don't know whether we have come to comprehend and understand that or not. You know, if you're building a house or you're laying a carpet or you're checking people out at a stand or whatever you might be doing. You need to be thinking about how Christ would do that job. What kind of quality would he be putting into it? 
Would he have his mind on what he's doing and being sure it was done right? Would he slipshod? Would he cut corners? Would he cheat people just a little bit so that he could profit? Would he lie a little bit to make it look right and make it look like he had given a full weight and measure? No, he wouldn't do that. So as we go through life, it needs to be constant in our mind about how we ought to do whatever it is we're doing to make sure that we're not cheating anybody in any way or getting away with something, but make sure we're doing the job right. There should never be a time when we're conscious that God should not be in that consciousness. Your relationship with your children, your relationship with your mate, your relationship with brothers and sisters, members of the church. We should never interact that with that, that, you know, in the back of our mind, we're not thinking about how we are helping, aiding and abetting the relationship as opposed to destroying it. When we open our mouth to speak of each other, it should always be in our mind how what we are saying might affect someone else. We should never be living without that consciousness. Not if we're to have, bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. You're not going to forget your wedding dress, are you? You're not going to come to the wedding supper unprepared. And the wedding dress really is holy, righteous character. That's what we have to be putting on. So if we're getting ready for the wedding, we need to be paying attention to the details. No bride wants to go to the wedding having put on the wrong shoe or anything else. She'll be very careful to go over it. Every hair must be in place. She is very careful to look her finest on her wedding day. Can we approach the wedding of the Lamb, the greatest wedding that the universe will have ever known, in a slipshod fashion? without having given attention to the detail? Scary to think about it any other way than doing it right. Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Every day we need to consider, I'm to be the bride of Christ. What kind of bride does Christ want? Would Christ's bride be handling this situation this way? Now, these words are not to condemn us necessarily. God is pleading with us. He's arguing with us. You know, think about this. Let, let's get this right, because I want you to be right on that day. Why trim you your way to seek love? Therefore have you also taught the wicked ones your ways. I didn't look that one up. Why trim you your way to seek love? Maybe it means you're trying to take shortcuts to the kingdom of God by kind of trimming it here and trimming it there a little bit. I'm not sure that's the correct uh, sense of that, but uh, we're not doing everything right, that's obvious. Therefore, you have also taught the wicked ones your ways. Also in your skirts is found the blood of the souls of the poor innocents. We are not without guilt. Maybe we're not taking care of each other in the way that we need to be. Maybe we're letting it slip by, and maybe... 
we offend others by some of the sins we allow in our own character and minds and heart, and their blood will be on our head. See, God commissioned me to speak to you, but he warned me that if I didn't tell you what you really need to know, your blood would be on my head. In other words, you're in the position of those innocents who are looking for correct guidance, direction, and help to be what you need to be. And if I shirk my responsibility or cut any corners and don't tell you the whole story, then God says, you will die because you didn't get where you needed to be, and I will die because I was commissioned to give you something I didn't provide. Now, he might have mercy on you, but it's going to be harder for me to obtain mercy. The judgment will be twice as strict, it says in James 3. So if I get after you, and I tell you the way it is, it's for your good, and it's for my good. Anything short of that, we're both in trouble. So we're, we're getting an education here from Jeremiah. These, this is what God told Jeremiah to go tell these people. This, this is what they need to hear. This will help them accomplish what I want them to do. God keeps saying, why do you do this? Why do you do this? Here's what you're bringing on yourself. This is, this is cause and effect. Fix it. Examine it. Don't deceive yourself. Don't just sort of wash under your arms and say, I'm clean now. Yet you say, because I am innocent. There is the defensive posture we get. What do you mean? I didn't do that. We'll lie. We'll say we're innocent. Surely his anger shall turn from me. If I can just convince myself that I'm okay, surely God won't be angry at me. Haven't you seen your children, and didn't I as a child, try to fix things up so dad or mom wouldn't know? You know, I got in the cookie jar, and then I cleaned up so I wouldn't get caught, and maybe I even rearranged them and fluffed them up so it looked, wouldn't look like there were any gone. I've been back on that. So in cleaning up after myself, oh, I didn't want to leave crumbs on the cabinet, so wipe them off on the floor. How long is it mom to come in, take one look at the floor, and know the whole story? How stupid do we think parents are? I remember my cousin and I getting my granddad's ice cream all the time. He'd buy those half-gallon things. And he'd be at work, and we'd be playing. We'd go in, and we'd get a little bit off the top. And we'd make it look like it did. And then we'd come back in an hour later, we'd skim about that much more off the top, and leave the shape, you know, this is that dip in the corner, we'd leave the shape the same way shape it was. But the shape was that much further down the box when he'd come in. Ice cream's gone. 
Oh my! Yet you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. I hid around the corner from the deep freeze. I'd hear my grand... The worst thing he'd ever call us was buttons. I'd hear him open the freezer door, open his eye, pick up his ice cream box and feel the weight. Sorry, buttons. <laughs> we were gone. Behold, I will plead with you because you say I have not sinned. God say, come on, just, just admit it. Just say, you got me, I'm sorry, I did it, I'll repent. Instead of defending, we go through incredible machinations to defend ourselves, don't we? All kinds of reasons for justifying the way we still are. Thinking that God won't see through it. Not a chance. He sees through it. Why gaddest you about so much to change your way? Have you heard that expression? Gad about? It's an old expression. been around a long time. Somebody that just sort of floats around town getting into whatever trouble they happen to get into. A gad about. Why gaddest you about so much to change your way? You shall also be ashamed of Egypt as you were ashamed of Assyria. You can say you haven't sinned, but you know all I have to do is kind of follow the cookie trail, and you know you can't run and hide from it. Yes, you shall go forth from him, and your hands upon your head. Now that is a picture of going into slavery. You know, you line up and put your hands on your head and march into a foreign land into slavery. For the Lord has rejected your confidences, and you shall not prosper in them. You can confide in yourself that you're okay. You can confide in each other. You know, you're okay, I'm okay. They're the problem. Church indulges in that a great deal. We cannot afford that luxury. I can't say, I'm good, and you're good. They're the problem. But almost every organization says that. And we've, we've approached this from a lot of different directions, but it all comes down to the same thing. We just simply have to admit our faults and do something about them. That's what historically has not been done. The prophets would come and tell Israel, here's the problem, do something about it, and they would reject it and stone the messenger that God sent. That's just been the way it is. God says there are going to be some who will change that. I don't know some of those out there that are going to change it. Don't know them from Adam. Never met them, never heard their names. They're scattered all over the world. So in one sense, I'm not too concerned about that. Because if I don't know somebody, I don't know, you know, they may be living in Manila somewhere, and there's one here, and there's one there, and I don't know either one of them, and I don't know which one might be faithful and which one might not because there's no personal interaction. So it's hard for me to be concerned which one of those ten Filipinos in Manila might be the one that's faithful. But I know you. You're my brothers and sisters. I know your names. I know your faces. I, I, I know your personalities. 
So I'm concerned that each and every one of you actually make the changes, not just hear this, reject it, or put it off, or justify. Let's, let's be honest with ourselves. We've got to overcome. We might as well just admit there's, there is something to overcome. And trying to impress each other about how good or how wonderful or how perfect or how knowledgeable we are isn't going to gain us anything. We've got to admit what we are and change it. That's what overcoming is all about. You're not going to overcome something you will not admit. If you're in denial, you'll never get around to changing it. The only way you have a chance to change it is to admit it's there. Then you can begin to do something. Chapter 3, they say, If a man put away his wife, and she go from him, and become another man's, shall he return to her again? Is that, is that a good thing? Puts her away, she goes to another man, maybe that breaks up and he takes her back. Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, says the Eternal. It's a hard thing. If a husband or a wife strays and goes away, does their thing, come back, and you say, man, this is kind of tough. But God says, come back. Come back. His mercy endures forever. God will bend over backward to remarry. Now he married ancient Israel, and ancient Israel played the harlot against him. Now he's being very selective. Jesus Christ is going to marry again. But he's not going to marry all of Israel. So he has to be only talking to the church here. We in the church are the only ones who are candidates to be the bride of Christ. The rest of physical Israel isn't. There are very few people that understand that the bride is only 144,000, that the sum of the first fruits is 144,000. So they're still out trying to call a lot of people because they think salvation in the first resurrection is open to and any number of people. But it's not. So when God says, you as a people have sinned against me, and I have divorced you, when he offers a new covenant, a new marriage, if you will, that's what a covenant is, an agreement, and it's a marriage agreement. If he offers that, he is very select, or very selective in whom he offers it. To. He will offer it only to a few weak and base. He will not offer it to many mighty and noble. That's why you and I are here. Because we're the few mighty and noble. <laughs> Tongue in cheek on that one. But it still stands that he has offered it to us no matter what we are. 
and, and we're not great by any means. So why pretend that we are? Let's admit what we are, because see, his glory is in taking something that isn't anything and making it into something. If he took somebody that already was something, then what glory is it to him to transfer it over here? No, his goal is to take something that didn't amount to anything and transform it into a worthy bride. And he wouldn't have called us. He, brethren, he would not have called any of us as individuals if he didn't think that transformation could occur. So don't do what was said earlier here. Where was it? I don't even see it. But, you know, I can't change. Yes, you can. Christ can transform you by the power of his spirit. You can be transformed from nothing to something on a spiritual level. God would not have opened your mind if he didn't believe that. And if he didn't believe it, I mean, if he did believe it, why don't you believe it? Why don't we live and walk by faith, trusting and knowing that God can change us? It can be done. I can look back in my life and see times when I despaired and thought, I'll never change that. I can't overcome that. You know, your life, I don't know how many problems you've got, but I, I was kind of like bobbing apples most of my life. And, you know, I, you got all these apples floating, and, and I'd push one down, and I'd push one down, and then I'd reach over and push the third one down, and then I'd reach a little further to get this one, and that one would pop up. So it seems like I've gone through my life bobbing apples. I think I had something under control, and I'd reach over to control something else, and this one would pop back up. Or putting out fires, you know. <laughs> you think you got this one out, so you go to work on this one, and that one flares back up. That's the way human nature is. You have X number of apples that are your problems. And the more you have, of course, the harder it is to get them all pushed under but it seems like it's an endless job. But God says it can be done. We can actually overcome. If nobody overcomes, there will not be a bride of Christ, there will be nobody in the kingdom. But God says there will be a bride of Christ, and there will be people there, and they will live eternally, and they will never cry or despair or have a tear in their eye again. Why couldn't it be us? We have just as good a chance as anybody, don't we? Why can't we be the faithful remnant? Why can't we be the ones that catch the vision and see that we need to admit where our problems are and then go to work overcoming them, calling on God in heaven to transform us and to change us? It is so easy for us to get sidetracked on this little issue or that little issue or this little teaching or this pet doctrine or idea and forget what we're there for to overcome. People make a religion out of one of their little pet ideas that they think they have that no one else has. I know people have made whole organizations out of the calendar. That's almost all they talk about. There are other organizations that have made 
a God out of the New World Order. That's almost all they talk about. What should we make God of? God. We should be trying to be like Him. Not espousing one particular little doctrine that we think would transform everything. We are what need transformed. Knowledge can puff up and keep you out of the kingdom of God. Because God will not allow pride and vanity in his kingdom. So we can go about around trying to express how important we are because we have this little important doctrine which has become so important in our eyes and be missing the whole point. You know, the old saying is so true. When you're up to your behind in alligators, it's hard to remember your original intent was to drain the swamp. Let's grasp and understand the original intent here. Yet return again to me, says the Eternal. He's given a few that opportunity. He hasn't given it to all Israel. He divorced them, that's it. But now for many, many centuries, thousands of years, Israel has gone its own way, and we were part of it, and now he says to a few, I want you to be a part of my bride. Come on. And he calls many, he gives many that opportunity. But only a few are going to take him up on it. Only a few will take him up on it. Isn't that weird and wild? Here is the God of all the universe. The one who created the stars. The one who created this earth. The one who created mankind. And gave us the bodies and minds we have. And the opportunities. And the lakes and rivers and trees and mountains and prairies the food, the drink that we enjoy. Here's a God who gave all that. And he says, I want to not just give you that, I want to give you the whole universe. I want you to rule it all. I want you to sit with me over a throne that has rivers running out of it that produces fruit year round every month. I want you to never cry or be hurt again. I want you to take you as my bride and hold you and comfort you and strengthen you and make you the most gloriously happy woman that the world or the universe has ever known. And he calls many people to that opportunity and 90% turn him down. There's only one cure for stupid. And that's the cure God's going to use. If we won't take him up on it, you say, what, what else could I have done? I might as well just blot you out. There's no hope. How can we possibly turn him down? But in our actions, we do. In our thoughts, we do. It's so easy to forget our wedding dress. Wouldn't think it, but yet return again to me, says the Eternal. Lift up your eyes to the high places and see where you have see where you have not been laid with. Look around 
at this society and its culture and tell me what is not adulterous and fornicating and departing from God in it. And we've been a part of it. He tells us, come out of it. And we say, oh, I'd like to, but I really don't want to. Can't I just sort of put my arm around you and hang on to this too? Can't we run flying into his arms and turn loose of everything out here and accept God as everything? What bride ever stood at the altar and didn't want to give her whole self to her new husband? Because before she woke up and realized it, she thought he was everything. Didn't some of you dads and moms try to tell them, now wait just a minute, honey, just let's talk. Can we talk? Yes, we can talk. I love him. He's wonderful. Yeah, but did you consider this? He doesn't have a job. He doesn't have a car. He doesn't have a house. He's wonderful. Did you ever try to talk to him? Did your parents ever try to talk to you? Then one day he said, that's what they meant. Now I know what they were talking about. It's called making the best of a bad situation or something like that. God says, lift up your eyes and look around and see where you haven't sinned. In the ways, have you sat for them, or out in the ways, the byways, the streets, as the Arabian in the wilderness, and you've polluted the land with your whoredoms and with your wickedness? He says, return to me. He's, he's talking to us here, brethren. He's not talking to the world. We're the only ones at this end time. He's appointed or anointed or asked or called to be the bride. He's telling us we've committed hoardings. We've not been faithful to our bridegroom. Anything that we think or do that is contrary to the way he lives, thinks, and does is a hoarding, spiritually speaking. Any unfaithful thought whatsoever. Therefore, cause and effect again, therefore the showers have been withheld and there has been no latter rain. Now, doesn't he tell us, isn't it in Joel, to pray for the early and the latter rain? Why? Because it hasn't come. We're sitting here in the church wanting the blessings of God, aren't we? Sometimes you have to do what is necessary to receive the blessings of God. There are conditions we are in a welfare society today, for the most part, that thinks they deserve a living. They deserve a salary. They deserve a position in a company or whatever. We've been taught we deserve any and everything that we desire. We have been taught by an affluent society that we don't have to work for things because our parents will give it to us. We don't know that maybe someday... They will quit giving it to us 
and we might actually have to go out and work for it. Where does food come from? Well, it comes from Walmart. How does it get to the house? Mom hauls it in the car. How does it get in my tummy? Mom cooks it and puts it on my plate and I spoon it in. That's where dinner comes from. Someday you wake up and realize Dad doesn't work for my dinner anymore and Mom doesn't go buy it. And somewhere I have to get the money to go buy it myself, fix it myself, and then I can still eat it myself. What a revelation when that happens. We look around and we don't see the latter rain and the blessings from God that are promised coming much yet, do we? Well, maybe there's a reason. Maybe God has just quit supplying everything the way he originally did. He gave us the land. He gave us the opportunity. He's given us the calling now in the church, spiritual opportunity. And if we aren't taking him up on it and working at it, we look around and say, where's dinner? There's no ladder rain. Bare and dry. No crops. Holy Spirit gone. Whatever. And you had a whore's forehead. You refused to be ashamed. We are often unwilling to be ashamed for what we think and do. For the things we allow our eyes to see and our ears to hear. We refuse to be ashamed of it and we go right ahead doing it. Will you not from this time will you not from this time cry to me, my father, you are the guide of my youth? There comes a time when the cupboard is so bare and the blessings not coming and the healings not being there and on and on and on it goes where we kind of wake up and say, where's God that provides? And we can make the mistake of not repenting and turning to God with our whole heart and looking for him then to provide. We can make the mistake of saying, well, God isn't doing it, so I guess I better go somewhere else for the answer. Wrong response. Wrong response. Turn to God with your whole heart. Depend upon him for everything. And if you trust him and have faith in him, eventually he's going to say, here are the former and the latter rains. I will open showers of blessings. I will remove your sins in one day, as we read in Isaiah. And you will be blessed in ways that you never even dreamed. That can be for us if we have the correct response. Cry, my father, you are the guide of my youth. Where, what happened? Where did you go? Well, i tell you the truth. I couldn't stand to look at you anymore. I just turned my head. I rolled my eyes and turned my head. Couldn't take it. That's what happened. Now, you change something and get it where I can... Look at you. Where I can stand you. That's, that's right where we are right now. God has turned his face from us, and he says, I'll turn it back 
and I'll bless you. But when I turn it back, I better see me there. I better see my image in you, because I'm not going to give you the former and the latter rain unless I see myself there. That's what he's looking for. We're on the cusp of this, brethren. Some people are going to receive the former and the latter rain. The scriptures are there. They're absolutely foolproof. God has staked his reputation and his life on it. As the waters of Noah. So it's going to happen. The only question is whether it rains on you and me. That's the only question. It's going to rain on somebody. And rain can be a blessing. I'm not talking about raining on our parade. I'm talking about showers of blessings. They're going to come to somebody. I want it to be you, and I want it to be me, and others. I'm done, aren't I? That's a good place to stop. That's a good positive thought. Let's be sure it rains on us.